10 p.m. in Tel Aviv, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live! Woohoo! <laughs> Dear God, I hope this is working. How are you guys? Good to see everybody. Let's say hello to the folks in the chat room. We've got Nancy Kalel, Ann House, Dan Weber, Jesse J. Peck, Nancy Kalel, Andre Stepanian, Martin Frog, Ewart Williams, Dan Weber, Howard Cooper, I saw Giovanni Lanza in there somewhere, Eric Anderson, Dean Turney, Dean Turner. <laughs> I had three hours of sleep last night and I'm in another time zone. Hello, Paul Stanton, how are you? Anyway, uh, hello everybody, good to see you guys post road rally. Um, I am uh, in another time zone. I'm 10 hours ahead of Los Angeles, uh, visiting my kids here in Tel Aviv again in a very, very echoey apartment. Yeah, baby. Listen to that. Sounds like an EMT plate. <laughs> um, anyway, I uh, missed you guys. Uh, I was so fried after the road rally. Just absolutely toasted this year. Uh, I worked really really hard for about 90 days getting that one ready and uh glad it's over but felt like it went well um what did you guys uh, any favorite panels or uh topics that you guys saw during this year's rally that you want to comment about before we get into talking about ask michael anything by the way i've always wanted to do an episode where we included everything including the kitchen sink Whoop. There it is, the kitchen sink. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yep. Uh, hey, Marion, how are you? Kara McCandless, hello. Uh, yeah, the favorite panels of the road ride. The, the surprise favorite for me was Arnold Block doing the thing on, uh, on rejection. Um, I knew it'd be good because I know him. Um, and no, he's a total professional, but I, I just thought he nailed it. And some of the sponsor videos, uh, I love the one from Air Gigs. Um, I love the thing we did with Randy Bachman. Um, man, oh man, that was sweet. Um, let's see, Rob Shirelli and the Denise Classical, what? What? My vision's actually blurry. I'm so tired. I, I literally had about three hours and 20 minutes of sleep last night. And now it's 10 o'clock. I just chugged a cup of coffee right before the show tonight. Robin Frederick rules. Yes, she does. She always rules. Um, Paul Stamp says, first road rally. Thought it went great. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm telling you, it's scary getting ready all those little details and i literally could not have done it without bria's very able-bodied assistance um, she flew in uh the day before and it was just bria and me for the prequels the first three days monday tuesday wednesday um, and then thursday we had our uh editor uh what do you call him uh, technical director come in um greg hall and he joined us for the next three days the official part of the road rally for members only and uh yeah we had a couple of missed cues things like that uh, a couple of little glitchy problems with audio and stuff how about shirelli <laughs> we were having so many problems with his audio got in his car drove over and uh 
Love that session. I always love hanging out with Rob. It was great. Jason Bloom, another just, you know, no matter how many times I hear Jason speak, I love him every time. He's awesome. Uh, Maurice Cobb, first time at the rally. Yay. Uh, <laughs> Super blonde. What? What's the best authentic breakfast where you are, which the locals enjoy most? Uh, are you asking that of me? Like favorite authentic breakfast uh, in Tel Aviv? Because um, I do have one actually, believe it or not. It's at the Sheridan Hotel on the beach in Tel Aviv. They've got a breakfast buffet that's mind blowing. Um, pretty Middle Eastern. I mean, yeah, they do have some of the regular stuff, but a lot of stuff you won't find in a typical American breakfast buffet. It's just, you just want to stay there and eat all day. If that was, if you were directing that question at me, uh, Mark Giovanni, fantastic, wasn't he? Oh my God, can that guy talk fast? But every word is important, you know? How that guy can just speak what's on his mind so quickly, boom, boom, you know, like machine gun delivery, and it's just all great. I love that guy. You'll be hearing from him more in the future. I'll, I'll get him to guest um, on Taxi TV, um, and uh, just, uh, I really, really like him. Hummus for breakfast? Yeah, they have it. Um, thank you, Nancy. Um, best Tel Aviv breakfast. Yep, that, that was it. Uh, gave up the details. There's another hotel I've stayed at, which is called the Publica, and that's in Herzliya, which is a suburb just north of Tel Aviv. They also have a killer breakfast buffet. Breakfast is really a big deal here. Um, anyway, love that. Uh, uh, Randon Purcell segment, Marion says, on how to work with MIDI and VSTs, learned a lot. Uh, love Nancy and Fett segment, they're always killer. Uh, you were, yeah, we loved having you at the office. Um, how many hours of sleep did I get after the road rally? You know, I typically only sleep like five, five and a half hours a night. That's something fairly late in life. That's been like the last three or four years for me. Um, so, you know, I got pretty normal sleep leading up to the rally and pretty normal sleep. Uh, I left LA, the rally ended Sunday night and I flew over here on Wednesday. Um, and the jet lag wasn't all that bad. Um, anyway, yeah, Randy Bachman, man. <laughs> That guy, you know, James Brown might have been the hardest working artist in show business. <clears throat> Excuse me. But Randy Bachman is the hardest working songwriter. I, I've known him for a very, very long time. And, and Randy thinks nothing of like flying over to London and, you know, doing like three writing sessions a day, um, every day for two or three months and then going to New York and going to Nashville. He's just all over the place always, always writing and always in search of improving his craft. He, he's so humble about, you know, that there's always more to be learned in songwriting. I love that guy. Uh, runny nose. Let's see. Do I have a paper towel handy? Yes, I do. Classy guy that I am. Excuse me. Um, you know, I actually had proposed 
that we get Tal and Randy together, but we couldn't work that out. Um, many years ago, and then I want to get into answering the questions here. I don't want to dilly-dally too much longer because we've already dilly-dallied for eight minutes. But uh, many years ago, I went to Randy's house uh, on an island uh, off of Vancouver, and I flew out on a seaplane, and he met me at the little like dockside airport, um, took me over to his house, and his house and his barn were made out of rammed earth. They put up forms, you know, like out of plywood, and then take sand and dirt, mix them together, and then tamp them down in between these forms, and that's how they create walls. So he had a studio on the second floor of his barn, and uh, took me up there and asked me to do a quick rough of uh, one of Tal's songs. I, I think it was actually She's So High. Um, and, and we, Taxi, we shopped that song around for, I don't know, a couple of months, literally to every A&R person that mattered in the industry. And everybody passed, um, including one of the guys at Columbia Records, which ultimately was the label the song got released on. One of the really big guys at Columbia Records passed on it. Uh, and then his boss in New York called him and said, sign this guy. And there you go. And they had a big hit. Um, well, yeah, there you go, Robbie. I wasn't giving away his exact location, but okay. <laughs> yes, we can see that. Salt Spring, Salt Spring. <laughs> I hope Randy's not watching. Uh, oh, Mary Ramos. You know, what can I say about Mary Ramos other than the fact that she's incredibly talented and incredibly professional music supervisor? Um, really does a, a wide range of, of stuff. And the, working with Quentin Tarantino has got to be a trip. Uh, very challenging, I'm sure, um, but also very, just, I, I don't even have words, very creative. Um, and I'm sure that they've developed a, a trusting relationship over the years. Anyway, she is a really nice human being, um, and, and I thought she was great. Uh, Anyway, loved having her on. Um, okay, so... Good job, Robbie, not giving out his address. <laughs> I'm sure he'll send you a thank you note for that. All right, without any further ado, let's take some questions. I know the people who watch these episodes after the fact and aren't part of the usual taxi TV family are like, what the hell? Why are you guys all chatting for 11 minutes? All right. Um, first question is from Buffalo Bob. Hello, Buffalo Bob. And his question is, are we allowed to quote taxi reviews on our website? Absolutely, as long as you say, you know, taxi music or taxi independent A&R and give us an attribution, certainly, why not? Um, that was a quickie. <laughs> On to the next. This one's from Martin Svensson. Um, I'd like to know if there's any common understanding for a publisher that sits on your song but haven't been able to cut it with an artist or sync I'm filling in a couple of words, sync it yet, to release it back to the writers again, or should this be in the deal to begin with? Um, yeah, it's called a reversion. Um, it should be in the deal to begin with. Um, some companies give it, other companies don't. Um, usually a reversion is something like after 
three years or five years if they don't get any action being a, a cut with an artist or a placement in a TV show or a film, um, it'll revert. To ask for it after the fact is a little unusual. Um, they're not going to love you for asking. I don't think they would hate you for it. it. Of course, depends on the individual publisher. But I would say that most aren't going to do it. And here's why. It's not that they want to be jerks about it or that they're trying to hang on to it um, just to, you know, like prove a point like, hey, man, you signed a deal with me and I'm never letting you out of it. It's actually quite a hassle to take something, especially in the world, uh, particularly in the world of sync, to take something that is part of a catalog when the catalog has been distributed to dozens, if not a hundred or two hundred different places in bulk, like the whole catalog. Let's say they've got five or ten thousand pieces of music in their catalog and they've sent that out to different post-production or production companies, you know, for their post editors to use and such. Um, if every time somebody wanted to pull something out of a catalog, um, then they would have to notify everybody. By the way, go into that catalog of five or ten, whatever number, you know, five or ten thousand things, whatever number it is, and look for this song by this composer or this artist and delete that one from your files. Um, that's pretty clunky. So I would venture a guess. It's an educated guess, but I'd venture a guess that most of them don't want to do it for that reason not because they're being sticklers. Look, they feel bad, you know, but let's face it, more often than not, most of the stuff that does get signed doesn't get placed. Um, it's the 80-20 rule, you know, 80% uh, of the, the publisher's income comes from 20% of the catalog. That will be true for you as well as every other writer and composer that 80% of your income ultimately will come from 20% of your material. And it's not that they're doing a bad job per se um, or at all. It's just if, they're, if they don't have requests coming in for that kind of music, then they just don't, you know, nobody's looking for it, then they can't sell it, which actually it's renting it. but. Um, so there's that consideration and that's where the phrase write, submit, forget and repeat comes from because you want to get as much of it out there into as many places as you can so that you can get your numbers up, meaning your income numbers. So I hope that answers your question. Oh yeah, John, uh, John Pearson, Greg Carosa, they're great. I love both of those guys, man. They're, they're really good human beings. They're also, uh, they have the right attitude, the right work ethic. Um, they're just good, hardworking guys. And, and I chose them because they're not like taxi royalty, you know, or superstars or anything yet, but they're getting there. You know, they're off the launching pad um, and they will both, I believe, end up earning their entire uh, income strictly from their music. Um, Maurice Cobb. Now, it's really not like the lottery because um, the lottery is just pure chance. Whereas with music, it, it's kind of what the market demands. Let's say you specialize in doing disco tracks, just 
because that's what popped into my head first. Let me take off my watch so it doesn't clunk. Um, so if you do a bunch of disco, and let's say a particular music library signs a dozen of your disco songs or disco instrumentals, because they happen to be working on a TV series that takes place in 1978 when disco was a big deal, uh, and then that series gets canceled, uh, right after you sign your stuff into their catalog and now they no longer have a big fat client that's using a lot of disco. So unfortunately your disco is in a catalog where they may not get another request for disco for six months or a year or three years or five years. Stuff like that happens all the time. Um, Darren Moss, is this the Lasco kitchen? This is a kitchen in an apartment in uh, a, a northern suburb of Tel Aviv, Israel, Darren. Hello, Darren. How are you, buddy? Um, yeah, I, I, you missed my big joke of, of the week here. I've always wanted to do an episode with the kitchen sink. Oh, damn. <laughs> and there it is, the kitchen sink. Um, anyway, so that explains that. Um, All right, let's do another one. That was a good question. Okay. This one's from uh, Chris Anderson. Chris asks, recently there have been a lot of percussion-based requests. Are these all from the same library or is there a sudden demand that has a number of libraries requesting this style? I'm doing this from memory. Uh, what memory, little memory I have right now after sleeping three hours last night and coming down off a 90-day uh, road rally uh, run-up, which really fried my brain this year, I gotta say. Um, I believe that the majority of them are from one library. And see, what that indicates to me is that that library has a client in the form of a TV show that is currently using a lot of that stuff. I think that there may have been a second company that was also looking for percussion based, but if I remember, because I do see every single listing before it goes out to you guys, uh, and my recollection from, I don't know, a week or two ago-ish, uh, is that I saw a few of them from one particular library, and I think there might have been another one or two from another library. Um, you know, the, the percussion stuff always works in a wide range of TV commercials, so it's a pretty good bet. I mean, I, I, nothing is a sure bet by any stretch, but let's face it, I, mean, I talked a bit about this with somebody during on one of the panels during the Road Rally, um, might have been Mary Ramos. Um, oftentimes, they don't use the full mix of, of anything. It doesn't have to be just a percussion-based instrumental. It could be a song, and, and they'll strip it down and just use stems, so it's basically, you know, like drums and bass or something. Um, so, a simpler is always better. And by the way, for the percussion things, my personal advice, and I underline this, italicize it, bold it, and then highlight it. My advice to you is don't try and be percussionist of the year. 
music supervisors and especially video editors who are using that stuff in reality shows, they are not looking for the world champion percussionist. Um, you could be the fanciest, most intricate, you know, counter polyrhythmic percussionist in the world. Uh, they're not looking for that. They're looking for something that is relatively simple. And I know it's really hard to resist. Oh, I got an idea for a really cool part. I'm going to put that in there. Wow, that sounds so cool. It may sound cool and they may even think it sounds cool, but it makes it less usable because it could you know, walk all over the dialogue. It could be just too busy that coming out of TV speakers, it doesn't play well. Um, they're really looking for groove more than um, chops. Okay, so there's that one. Um, next up. Okay, this one's from Ben DeCuna. Um, hello, Ben. Never seen you in the chat before, so hopefully you're watching today's episode so you can hear this answer. Uh, do the screeners wait until the deadline is over to review the submissions, or do they review them as they're submitted? I'm wondering if I were to submit, say, a week early and my piece is sent back, would I be able to make revisions and resubmit the piece if it's still before the deadline? So far, I've only been submitting pieces very close to the deadline, but I'm wondering if there'd be this possibility if I were to submit earlier. The screeners start literally the day of the deadline, the day after the deadline, sometimes the day before the deadline, and what determines if we start the day of the deadline, um, or usually it's the morning after the deadline passes. Let's say, um, well, for me right now, it's Monday night, the 22nd of November, um, here in beautiful Tel Aviv, Israel, um, I would say that generally speaking, they start the next day. Now, if it's something like the percussion-based things, we know we're going to get a lot of submissions for that because a lot of people are really good at making those. So we anticipate and we might start screening a day or two early, um, but it gives you no advantage and that's as early as we would start. Um, we would also assign more screeners to that just to handle the volume. Um, and the reason that we wait until the deadline to start screening is if we started screening, let's say a listing is out there for three weeks and let's say submissions start coming in. Usually submissions come in pretty heavily the first day and the second day that the listing is out there. And then there's kind of a dip in the middle. And then as we get closer to the deadline, usually a day before, two days before, and then the day that the deadline is hitting, that's when the bulk of the submissions, it's kind of like 40% come in when it, the listing first appears, another 40% come in very close to the deadline and the remaining 20% happens in the dip between the published date and the end date or the deadline date. So um, there's really uh, no advantage to submitting earlier or later. Uh, and the reason we don't start listing early is let's say we got in 22 submissions today. Listing was published today and we got in 22 submissions overnight. Um, and then the following day we get six, the following day we get three, the following day we get two, the following day we get nine. So we would have to be bringing in screeners. Hey, we got three things for you today. We got nine things for you today. We'd rather bring in the screeners when we've got 
you know, several dozen or a hundred or 200 um, so that they can stay focused on that one thing and keep doing them all. We can't bring the screeners in um, just to do piecemeal work like that. So there's the answer for you. Uh, all right, Marion, hang on to these uh, questions coming in the chat. I'll get to those after I go through these guys on my phone. Uh, this one's from Dean Kremitis. I hope I'm not butchering your name, name Dean. Uh, my question is multi-pronged. Ooh, the multi-pronged question. Regarding the co-production, oh, I read this one before. It's a good question. I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer, but let's find out. Regarding the co-production of an instrumental track or cue. In other words, help with the mixing and mastering, not the writing or performing. When it comes to music libraries slash supervisors, do they want or need to see anything beyond the signed work for hire form? For example, if I've signed, if we have a signed split sheet with an agreed 15 to 20% designated to the co-producer of an instrumental track or cue, do the music libraries or supervisors uh, need to know this? Yeah, actually, I'm not a music attorney. I could be wrong about this. I think I'm right, but I think I'm right all the time. Just ask my family. Anyway, I think I'm right, but please don't, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. So they always want to know the splits. Everybody wants to know the splits because that's how people get paid. So if you've got 80% and, you know, John Doe has 20% and you gave John Doe the 20% because John engineered or produced or mixed your thing, um, then they need to know that so they can send John Doe his split. So they would need to know his name and his publishing company name, like John Doe Music. Um, so they need work for hires. This is the part I'm not 100% sure about, but I'm pretty sure. A work for hire um, is relevant for somebody who performs on your thing, whether it's a vocalist, a bass player, a keyboard player, what have you. Um, a, a mix is not a performance. Um, production is really not a performance, although you might be able to argue that some aspects, you know, if the production is beyond the mixing, which they are really are separate things, they could include each other, but they really are separate. So what they're looking to avoid in the reason that they want work for hires on people who perform parts is they don't want somebody coming out of the woodwork after the fact. Let's say that John Doe was actually, um, uh, the synth player, the keyboard player. And John Doe came up with a really cool little piece of ear candy that was so catchy and so significant to the song that John Doe felt that he actually co-authored the song, was a co-writer on it, because without his cool little, you know, melody thing, um, being so incredibly catchy and sticky and memorable, uh, the piece of music might have not been so good, right? So they don't want John Doe to go see a movie two years down the road. He's sitting there with his wife stuffing his face full of popcorn, and he hears that song in the back of a bar scene coming out of a jukebox or something, and goes, hey, that's my song. I co-wrote that. Well, did you? 
If you signed a work for hire, even if you came up with that very cool part, you were paid to play keyboards. Uh, now, if you came up with that part in the session and it was such an integral part to the song, you would be wise if you were John Doe, the keyboard player in that scenario, to say, hey, hang on a minute. I think that that part that I just came up with um, is significant to the success of the song, to the identity of the song. Um, can you cut me in for a little piece of the writing? I, I want to co-write on this. So in that case, um, you would move beyond a work for hire. It would no longer be, you know, if, if somebody signs a work for hire, they're just playing like one, four, five, you know, on the keys, no big deal. If they do a cool little flourish or something, still no big deal. If they come up, uh, and I'm not going to hum it because I don't want to get a copyright strike, but the Rod Stewart song, uh, uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy? Um, there's a keyboard player, I believe his name was Dwayne Hitchings, and I believe, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there was a lawsuit over the synth part, which became uh, everybody in the world could hum. Uh, there were five notes leading up to another sequence of notes after it, but anybody who hears those five notes in that sequence is going to know which song it is. In that case, you've moved beyond a work for hire. And uh, maybe back then, you know, this was probably around 1975, I would guess, um, the keyboard player maybe didn't have the presence of mind to say, hey, you know what, guys? I just made a major, major contribution to the melody of this song. As a matter of fact, that little lick I came up with is the most identifiable part of the song, maybe even more identifiable than Rod Stewart's vocal or something. So he would have been wise right then and there to bring, every, bring that to everybody's attention and say, we have a situation here. People are sometimes uncomfortable doing that because they fear that Oh my gosh, if, if I say that uh, or make a, a big deal out of this, I may never get hired on another session ever again. Um, people are going to think I'm trying to weasel my way into a co-write on everything I merely play keyboard on. So it, it can be tricky. Now, um, an engineer or a mixer or today's definition of a producer is so broad and so vague. I don't know, maybe there have been test cases out there that would prove me wrong, but I would say generally speaking, those people don't even really need to sign a work for hire because they're not performing uh, on that piece of music. Um, although, you know, they may say, hey, my mix is a performance. So anyway, check with your local music attorney. <laughs> to get a real answer, but I think that I'm right about that. Uh, yeah, Cass McKenzie. Hey, Cass, how are you, buddy? Uh, just brought up a good point. Carol Kay's bass lines were all work for hire. Um, you know, the industry has matured. Uh, people's knowledge of the business side of the industry has certainly um, gotten better over the years. Uh, and while Carol Kay may not have said something you know 40 years ago or 50 years ago whenever that was um maybe today she would anyway um 
Did I just... Oh, there's Dean. Hey, Dean. Okay. Uh, oh, I missed part of it because it was on, on the next page. My understanding is the responsibility of the composer-writer after having received whatever payout is to then pay the co-producer the agreed-upon percentage. Is that correct? Um, again, I'm not a music attorney, and in this case, it depends if the co-producer is also a writer. Um, and if the co-producer, you know, by today's definition of producers, so many producers are, in fact, co-writers. I, I don't know what the correct answer is, but if they are co-writing, um, then they're going to get their money from the publisher uh, and more importantly, the back end from uh, BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, whatever the PRO is that collects the money for public performances. Um, this one's from Maurice Cobb. As a songwriter instrumentalist, when I see ads, I think he means listings for cues, <clears throat> Is it background music they're looking for? Yeah, um, oftentimes it is in fact used in the background. It could be used in the background of a bar scene. Um, that's called um, background source music because it is ostensibly coming from a source that would be in that room with the actors, like a jukebox or maybe those flat white speakers in the ceiling in a hotel lobby or a grocery store aisle. Um, could be a car radio that's playing while two actors are having a discussion in the front seat of a car driving somewhere. So, um, yeah, it, it's most of the time it's background-ish. There are times where instrumental music is featured. Um, maybe it's an opening to a scene of a film that takes place at a Caribbean resort and the opening 35 seconds of the movie is a helicopter shot of the beach and the resort and then it comes down to beach level and you see the actors sitting at a bar 50 feet away drinking pina coladas. So far all you've heard is that reggae music that would be a featured use because there's no dialogue and the music is loud and upfront. So there's a case of an instrumental track that would be featured. Most of the time though, it's in the background. Um, and it doesn't have to be background source. It could be just background um, period. But if it's, if you were in the scene yourself, if you were physically standing where the actors are, or the characters are, better way to say that, um, would you hear the music in the room that they're in? If that were the case, then that would be background source. Um, if somebody walks out the front door of a business establishment, somebody goes shopping and they're walking out the front door carrying a bunch of shopping bags out on Rodeo Drive and there's instrumental music playing, um, that would be uh, and dialogue going on, that would be background, but not background source because the music wouldn't be playing out on the street. And if the actors were not speaking and the music came up, um, then it would be a featured use of instrumental music. So there you go. Um, yeah, featured use pays a lot more. 
What you want in television is a featured use on a broadcast network, meaning ABC, CBS, NBC, or Fox um, during prime time and a featured use. That is going to pay you the most. Um, having background, um, you know, at two o'clock in the morning on a minor cable channel is going to pay you the least. Um, And by the way, Maurice, you would be really, really, um, you would be doing yourself a favor to hang out on the taxi forums at forums.taxi.com. And it's obviously watching taxi TV is a great way to ed get educated. Um, watching uh, the, the road rally panels is a great way to get educated. By the way, if you don't, guys don't know this, you can access all the private members only road rally stuff by going to your member profile, um, your artist page, and you will see in the upper right hand corner, I believe there's a link that says 2021 road rally and you can click and see those videos of the panels that the public is not allowed to see. Um, What was I going to tell you about that? Oh, uh, just so you know, though, there's a difference between instrumentals and instrumental cues. Cues are constructed differently. They're usually about 90 seconds long. That doesn't mean like 89 or 92. They could be, you know, 76 seconds long. They could be 104 seconds long. 90 seconds is kind of the sweet spot. There's no hard, fast rule for that, but generally not as long as a song. And they're not constructed like a song with a 30 second intro and a verse and a chorus and a bridge. Uh, it's basically all a section, which is usually somewhat akin to a chorus. And then in the middle somewhere, there will be something that is kind of similar to a bridge, just to add some variation, and that's the B section. Um, and you would be wise to get right to the heart of the matter, get to the red meat, as they say, right off the bat. Nobody wants to hear a long intro in the land of instrumentals or instrumental cues. Get right to the heart of the matter, um, and then end it, generally speaking, almost entirely almost every cue, um, the people on the industry side wanted to end on a buttoned ending, which means going right back to the tonic and, and ending it on, on a beat. So it's finite. It doesn't fade. They can't edit a fade is what I'm trying to say. And for different genres of music, you know, if you're doing a big bombastic orchestral thing, something like you might hear in, oh gosh, uh, what was the pirate movie with Johnny Depp? Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, you know, those orchestral pieces, which were obviously scored, are going to end with, you know, a big crescendo and then bump. That's called a stinger. Sting or a sting out, a stinger ending. It's an exclamation point. A buttoned ending is kind of like a stinger, just less emphatic. So it's more like a period at the end. Um, that's my terminology. I mean, I didn't come up with the, the phrase buttoned ending, but... That's how I would define button. A button ending is a period, boom, it ends there. A stinger ending is ba-da, it's big. And if you wanted to edit right on the downbeat of that, you could just take that da-da and make it its own thing. Am I gonna get a copyright strike as I just went ta-da? Probably. Um, okay.
Next question. By the way, Maurice, songwriters see the word composer and they think of John Williams holding a baton or Hans Zimmer. Um, most of the people in the chat room right now are composers because they figured out that, yeah, I'm a singer songwriter and I play a lot of organic acoustic instruments, six string guitar, 12 string guitar, mandolin, whatever. Um, by constructing their music in the form of a cue and not having vocals, guess what? You're a composer. You don't need a baton, a violin, or a full orchestra to be a composer. You could literally do a solo piano piece or a finger-picked acoustic guitar piece or just a drum thing, just instrumental, uh, per instrumental percussion. You're a composer. So there you go. Okay, this one's from Bernhard Bossard. Bossard, B-O-S-S-A-R-D, Bossard. Let's make it French. Bernhard Bossard. Uh, my question is, do the screeners know whose music they screen? Yes. Um, do they pay attention to it? I don't know. I mean, they're certainly not emotionally disconnected from the music they're working with. And yes, they can see the member's name. Um, I don't know why you're asking the question, but I've had people ask me similar questions in the past, and I think their motivation was, do the screeners know it's me? Because I worry that if a screener says, oh, it's me, you know, Tom Delaney, uh, and they see my music again, they've got it in for me. And every time they see a piece by Tom Delaney, they're gonna go, oh, I'm not gonna forward him. No, um, the music is judged on the music itself. Is it over the quality bar, number one, and does it match what the listing asked for, number two? Um, I will say that I've heard screeners remark, uh, I've been doing this for 30 years now, coming up on 30 years in a couple of months, that I've heard screeners say, oh, that guy's stuff is always great. Now, that said, uh, you know, and that's a positive acknowledgement of a particular member's name. Um, we have plenty of people that you would consider taxi royalty, you know, like the, the people who are making a five-figure, six-figure income uh, doing film and TV music. They don't get forwarded all the time either. They don't get forwarded because of who they are. They get forwarded because of the music they make for that particular request. So they're held to the same exact standard you are. They don't get any breaks because let's take Matt Vanderbilt, who is, you know, legit taxi superstar. Um, Matt would be the first to tell you that there are plenty of times he doesn't get forwarded. Um, and he's also kind of matured enough, if you can use that word with Matt. He's very funny, very goofy, but he's actually really smart, a really good guy. He's just a bit of a goofball in a good way, a very lovable way. Um, he would be the first to tell you that he still gets pissed off when he doesn't get a forward, but he has a mature attitude and goes, look, obviously, you know, I've, I've been using taxi for 10 years. I know that the screeners know what they're doing. And if they didn't forward me for this, they really felt that it wasn't on the nose for what they asked for. Um, so it's always going to be a bitter pill, but 
the people who've been around the block for a while, the taxi, get to know the fact that the screeners make decisions based on the music. There, there's not favoritism. Uh, just because people love Matt, they can't forward the wrong music to a, a publisher or a music supervisor. That's going to hurt Taxi's reputation, and by extension, it hurts the opportunities that you guys are getting. So even if it's Matt Vanderbo or somebody else that is regularly forwarded or had a lot of success through Taxi, um, still can't forward their stuff if it's not on the money. Um, Matt said that he once had 68 straight returns. Yeah, I believe that was in the beginning. Um, I see Marion talking about, uh, yeah, most of the time uh, Marion's talking about buttoned endings again, going back to the tonic or the root. Um, that's the case most of the time. Again, it's not a hard, fast rule. It depends on the piece of music, but I would say, you know, on average, 80 or 90% go back to the tonic. Um, let's see, you got a root. Wake my phone back up here. This one's from Anthony McAdams. Why do songwriters have so many problems getting their songs to the right people? Why do we have to get our songs demoed first? And why do we have to pay toward the demo when the publisher demo company sees our song and wants to turn them into a demo? I'm going to read this word for word. I'm not understanding it. Maybe somebody can translate for me. Why do songwriters, um, songwriters possessive, apostrophe S, why do songwriters, I think it's intended to be plural, why do songwriters have so many problems getting their songs to the right people? Why do we have to get our songs demoed first? And why do we have to pay towards the demo? I think he means pay for a demo when the publisher demo company sees our songs and want to turn them into a demo. I'm sorry, Anthony, I just don't really understand. I, I don't want to answer it incorrectly because I don't understand it. So if you're watching the show, um, if you can work on the wording of that a little bit, I'm more than happy to answer. I just have to understand what it is that I'm answering. Next one's from Johnny Vanderlip. Um, since some of your screeners are also songwriters, when opportunities come in, how does Taxi avoid potential conflicts? This is a great question. I haven't even finished reading. I know where it's going. How does Taxi uh, avoid potential conflicts of interest that the screener wants to pitch it as well? Do the screeners have first crack at the opportunity before the paying members? No. Screeners are not allowed to take the information um, that they can't say, oh, this is for that company um, and, and pitch their stuff. And they certainly uh, would not go to the front of the line. Look, uh, Taxi has been around for 30 years. Um, people often use the word integrity to describe Taxi, and I hope that's the case. Um, we would have no integrity if we were charging members money to be members and letting our screeners who are getting paid to screen your work submit their music at the front of the line to potentially beat you out of the opportunity. No, no, no. And if I caught somebody doing that, and I think I have once in 30 years, I found out that one screener probably 
2002, 2003-ish, somewhere around there. One screener that was actually doing that um, and fired him immediately. So there you go. Um, let's see. Next question. This one's from Chrysanthi Pappas. I watched the Taxi Road Rally. Hey, Rob, can you fix my mix with you and Rob, which was great. Thank you. Um, I always love having Rob on the show. He's like a brother to me, and the two of us can talk endlessly about knobs, buttons, and DBs. Uh, I submitted a song of mine to be listened to at that session, but unfortunately it didn't get chosen. Would I be able to pay you or Rob to take a listen to it and tell me how to fix the mix? Um, can't pay me. Um, Rob is his own entity. He doesn't work with me or for me. He's just an extremely close friend who I have a professional and a friend relationship, friend, friendly relationship with. Um, but honestly, Rob works with really, really, really big artists. Um, he probably mixes a, at least 300 days a year. He is mixing big records. Um, for him to take the time, I mean, I know what he charges per mix, generally speaking, and it's a lot of money. Um, for him to take, you know, an hour out of a day to every time somebody wants to send him a song and say, oh, well, if I were you, I would do this differently in the mix or that differently in the mix, um, I would be shocked absolutely shocked if he's the nicest guy in the world but i'd be shocked if he even answered the email frankly look he's a dear friend of mine our families spend holidays together we're that close we've known each other for well over 30 years our wives are close our kids have grown up together um and as close as we are if i email rob i can pretty much count on either not getting an answer at all or getting an answer, you know, days later, maybe even a week or two later. The guy works, you know, 12, 15, 18 hours a day. Uh, last thing he wants to do is sit there and field emails, even from me. I, there have been times where I've really needed an answer from Rob right away, and I'll text his wife and say, can you tell your husband to go answer my email? That's how I get to Rob. <laughs> He would laugh if he heard that because he knows it's true. <laughs> I haven't had to do that often, but I have done it. Um, okay, uh, Chrysanthi goes on to say, my song's an upbeat adult contemporary song called Hug a Million Times that I recorded, mixed and mastered in a top-notch professional studio. Song got a lot of airplay this past summer and even reached number nine on the world indie music charts. When I submitted it to a taxi listing, here's what they said. Um, and then it says here is taxi the listing oh here's the taxi listing description modern emotionally upbeat songs in all genres male or female vocals needed by a great publisher with an awesome track record of really big placements in TV commercials please submit songs that could viewers I'm filling in a word or two here. Please submit upbeat songs that could get viewers excited about whatever's being advertised in a commercial. Your submission should have solid melodies, infectious rhythms, catchy hooks, and feel-good lyrics. Um, whatever genre you decide to submit, 
Please be sure your production is modern and competitive with other artists in that genre. Exuberant, well-performed vocals could be the final touch to get this publisher excited about your music. Here's the taxi feedback I received. I really love this song. What, a, what fantastic writing. I'd recommend working on the mix. Your low end could use a boost and the various elements um, could be nicely cued and rebalanced to make the song much more impactful sonically. Um, this is a great song, but it does need a bit more work to get the music production reaching the extremely hard, high bar set by this client. So I'm going to have to send it back to you right now, but I can't wait to hear an improved version of the mix. My question to you, um, this from Chris, is how do I specifically fix this mix to their standards? <sighs> Impossibly hard for me to say, um, but I do have some advice for you. Number one would be to post it in the peer-to-peer -peer section of the Taxi Forum at forumswithans.taxi.com. There's a section in there called peer-to-peer, -peer, which I think everybody who's ever used it would tell you can be extremely helpful. Um, Taxi's forum members are pretty much unlike forum members, especially those on um, audio-related forums, which can be a little snippy and snipey. <laughs> like, dude, that mix sucks. Well, you don't get that attitude from the Taxi members. You get people who are helpful. Are they all going to be right 100% of the time with their advice? No. Look for consensus. If you get 12 responses um, and out of those 12, 8 or 9 or 10 of them all say the bottom end is lacking, pretty good chance the bottom end is lacking. Um, so look for consensus. And the other thing that you might want to try to do uh, is send it in for a custom critique at Taxi, which you can send in a song and say, can you give me advice on improving this mix? Although I generally instructed the screeners to stay away from mixing advice because it's very subjective. Um, you know, what one person considers a great mix, somebody else might not. And sometimes there's a fine line. Other times it's pretty obvious. That's why I look for consensus. Um, I stand by the screeners way more often than not. I mean, I will disagree with the screener. We will override a screener on occasions, but we've found out time and time again that when people go, oh my gosh, the screener didn't know what the hell they were talking about. We asked the member to put the, the listing up, um, put the piece of music up on peer-to-peer, -peer, and lo and behold, the vast majority of instances um, the public or the, the, their fellow members agree with the screener. So I know the, the screeners, I mean, you met some of them during the road rally. These people are much higher level than people would ever believe they are. People want to believe that taxis using interns, those of you who are in the know, know that, that couldn't be further from the truth. So if one of our screeners says, you know, the mix isn't quite there, it's probably not quite there. Uh, and they, they did give a specific, right? Didn't they talk about the bottom end or something? Let me go back to that. Your low end could use a boost and the various elements could be EQ'd nicely. So yeah, you know, I mean, you might have gone to a professional facility and maybe the engineer just, whoever mixed it, didn't see it the right way. I don't know. I don't want to say they're having a bad day. I think professionals... Um, most of the time don't. Professional engineers and producers, um, 
everybody can fall prey to having a bad day and doing bad work because of it. Most of the engineers and mixers and producers I've worked around in my career don't let that happen very often. That's why they're professionals and that's why they're called professionals. Um, okay, let's see. Sorry, I'm wobbling because I'm standing during this entire thing and it took me about 45 minutes to get the setup right. Um, I don't have my roadcaster with me. I feel crippled without my roadcaster. That's my uh, device that I use to get audio into Taxi TV. So for this episode, I've had to take the uh, intro music and the outro music and put it in like video frames um, in our broadcast software and click and then say broadcast that. So it's a little less than perfect and it's not the way I'm used to working. So my rhythm is off and I had to spend a lot of time on setup and I'm standing because the apartment we're in does not have bar stools and I'm actually at the uh, island or the peninsula in the kitchen of this place. This one's from Felix Guerrero. I write about 25 country, I wrote about 25 country songs back in the 1990s with a guy who passed away a couple of years ago after several years of illness. Sorry to hear that. Uh, one of your queries asked for singer-songwriter slash country songs recorded in the 90s. I've tried to contact my co-writer's family, but no luck. I lost track of them a few years back. Is it possible to pitch these songs without knowing the status of my dead co-writer's publishing contracts still in force? It's a great question. It's a very tricky, touchy subject. Um, I don't think anybody is going to sign a song. There are rare exceptions where a publisher, especially on a piece of vintage music, will go to incredible lengths to try and find the family of a deceased co-writer or somebody who evaporated that was in a band with you back in 1968 and then you haven't spoken to that person since 1970 and they co-wrote the song and you can't track them down. If the publisher's absolutely dying to have the song, they will invest the time and effort to track them down. Um, it would be a pretty rare circumstance that they would put that effort in. It would have to be a piece of music that they are dying to have and they would have to be pretty self-satisfied they're professional enough and expert enough in what they do that they would have to be satisfied that their best effort could not be one-upped by somebody else's best effort now does that leave open the door a possibility that three years down the road that piece of music is in a major motion picture and the co-writer is sitting in the theater well in this case it'd be the family members of the decedent sitting in the theater and they go hey that's uncle johnny's song there uh let's look at the music credits and track these people down because they stole uncle johnny's song um then you've got a copyright infringement case on your hands and uh you know it's gonna be a big problem if I'm not mistaken, each instance of a copyright infringement is 150K, I believe. Um, that's $150,000. So that's not chicken scratch. That's not something you're going to settle out of court for 50 bucks or 500 bucks or probably even $5,000. 
Um, when people know that they've been wronged, and it's a pretty clear-cut case, they smell blood like sharks in the water, and they will go to an extreme because they think there's a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. Speaking of pot of gold at the end of a rainbow, the other morning I woke up, I looked out, this particular apartment looks out at the Mediterranean Sea from where across the street from it, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred feet from the water or something. And I woke up to a rainbow and actually saw the end of the rainbow touching the Mediterranean. So I have seen for the first time in my life, the end of the rainbow. Was there a pot of gold? Not as far as I could tell. Maybe some little dude in a, like a rubber raft, a Navy SEAL in a rubber raft swung by and picked up the pot of gold before I saw the rainbow. I don't know. Don't know, but just saying, how many times in your life have you seen the end of the rainbow? All right, moving on to the next one. Good questions, really good questions, I've got to say. Um, this one's from Judy Watson. Uh, my question for Michael is, when Taxi refers a song or artist to a library catalog, should we pay a music attorney to review the contract? And if yes, and the lawyer gives advice not to sign the contract, would Taxi like this information shared with them? So in other words, do you like to get feedback on your referrals? Um, couple ways I want to answer that. Number one is the totally straight up legitimate advice that all of my friends who are music attorneys would say, absolutely consult a music attorney. There are music attorneys and there are music attorneys. If it's a real, first of all, 95% of the music attorneys at the super pro level and all they do is music or entertainment law, 95% of them don't know Jack about production music libraries. Why? Because it's always been considered the bastard stepchild of the industry. Oh, I, I do record deals with Michael Jackson. Well, I used to do record deals with Michael Jackson. I don't touch music library stuff. That's a pittance. Um, I, I won't comment on that. I am not gonna say anything nasty about attorneys because I don't want any of them to sue me. Um, but they just don't know what they don't know is the bottom line. And 5% of the music attorneys, I'm going to mention a name here, um, Erin Jacobson, who spoke at the road rally. She's spoken at many road rallies. She is completely knowledgeable about the music library industry. And there are times where she and I disagree. Now, all attorneys, I think virtually all attorneys will say to you, um, Aaron and I could have a discussion about a particular music library's contract and she would say, well, um, I would advise my client not to sign that deal. And I would say, but Aaron, that deal is pretty much like all the other deals out there in music library land. And she goes, well, that's a business decision. As a lawyer, she has to say what she has to say, but she does understand that sometimes you make a decision based on it's the way things are, it's the way things are typically done. All that to say, the straight up advice, especially if I had a music attorney sitting on my shoulder or this shoulder trying to get a drink of water out of the kitchen sink, would be uh, the lawyers will all say, yes, consult a music attorney. You know what? You're going to spend more 
most music attorneys I know are anywhere between 400 and 500 bucks an hour. Um, and if you think that they're going to spend a half an hour reviewing the contract and you're going to get away for a couple hundred bucks to find out, you're not. Uh, it's going to be easily 500 bucks, maybe even a thousand bucks. Are you going to make a thousand dollars on an instrumental cue in a library? Statistically, probably not. It's all about the aggregate. Are you going to get 100 cues, 500 cues, 1,000 cues out there in many libraries over a period of years and then the income starts to accumulate? Yes, that's the way it's done. So would I personally spend $500 or $1,000 to find out if a contract is something I want to sign with a library uh, especially if it's a library that you've been referred to by taxi because we vet the companies. We've worked with like a thousand libraries and that's probably not an inaccurate guess that I just said. Um, and out of all those companies over 30 years, there have only been a couple of times, maybe three that I can remember where I went, oh crap, I wish we hadn't worked with that company. And if I'm not mistaken, both or all three of those, if there were three um, cases, the, the company's deal was X when we started working with them and then they revised their deal at some point, didn't tell us, we continued to run listings for them. Our members said, hey, that's not the, you know, they used to be a non-exclusive library, they just sent me an exclusive deal in the mail. So stuff like that has happened a couple of times, maybe three times over 30 years and like a thousand different libraries that we've worked with. So the wise move, in my personal opinion, and this is not legal advice, is to go on the taxi forum. Don't use the name of the library. The libraries don't like it when you mention their name because a bunch of people who aren't taxi members will glom onto that name and start sending them a bunch of unsolicited material or start commenting about them in a public forum when they really know nothing about the company, blah, blah, blah. So what you want to do is say, I've got a clause in a contract from a library and I'm wondering if those of you who are experienced have ever seen a clause like this before, would you sign this contract? The vast majority of the times people are going to tell you, yes, I, know, I recognize that language. I've actually signed with that company. They've done really well for me. They've proved to be a legitimate um, kosher company over time so you could probably expect the same results from them or the same treatment from them the same ethical treatment from them so excuse me um that dan weber says aaron plus taxi tv equals less contract trepidation yeah you know something aaron and i have talked about ad nauseum um at this road rally as well as other ones um and when she's been on taxi tv is startup music libraries, um, there are a few different ways they start. One of the ways they start is a musician who has been very successful getting their own music into a bunch of libraries, now has some relationships with music editors or music supervisors as well, and they're getting more requests than they can handle with their own music. There just aren't enough hours in the day and or they're getting requests for music in genres that they can't do. So they will then start a library. Hey, I know a bunch of my fellow taxi members that I could actually send the briefs I'm getting to them and I could be the library and I could make half the money and they would be happy because they're making half the money and getting more opportunities than they had yesterday. 
those people are startups, usually starting up with very little to no money invested. Um, and what they do is they will go Frankenstein a contract together by taking, oh, I like that clause in this library's contract, and I like that clause from that library's contract. They put them together, and they're not lawyers. They don't realize they've just assembled a contract that sounds nice and legal. It's got a bunch of big words in it, a bunch of fancy legalese in it, but they don't realize that paragraph 21 may contradict paragraph 22. So you got to watch out. One of the telltale signs that Aaron points out, and I've seen this with my own eyes, is if you get a contract and a third of the contract is in 12 point Times New Roman font, and then, you know, like the next four or five clauses are in Helvetica 10 point, and the next four or five clauses are in something else, that's a sure sign that it's been Frankenstein. If it's not the same font from top to bottom, font size and font style. So that's one way to know. Um, I know that several taxi members have also paid a music attorney and dropped 500, 1,000, maybe even a couple thousand dollars to go over to take a deep dive on the first contract they got and say, explain this to me. I want to understand, fully understand, which each and every clause in this contract means so that the next time I get a contract, I can look at it with like an attorney's eye. So that's a good way to go. If you've got that kind of change floating around, um, that would be a worthwhile investment in my opinion. But just know that the companies we work with at Taxi, we turn away a lot more requests for music than we actually will run through the company. We look at the libraries. How long have they been around? Is there anything in their history that points to their credibility? Do they have a lot of placements? And not just logos on their website, but can we actually like, have we, I watch incessantly watch music credits, even on reality shows. And I will see library names pop up and go, I've never heard of that company. And I'll see that name pop up 20 or 30 times in a year over a period of several years. And then lo and behold, one day they reach out to Taxi, can I hit you guys up for some music from your members? And I will give them the approval. The final approval goes through me and I will give them um, the approval to run listings with us because I've seen with my own eyes that they get a lot of music and a lot of reality shows. So that's one way that we verify. Another way, um, there are times where we will go, always we go online and look at the actual library and we will go in and look at the music that's in their catalog and look at the composer's names. And if I see several taxi members in there, which is often the case, I will then call those taxi members and say, by the way, XYZ companies uh, wants to run listings with us. Has your experience been that they are ethical and professional? Yes. Um, have they made you any money? Not a lot, but some. Okay, so that's over the bar enough. You know, we know they're ethical. We know they're professional. We know that they've gotten some placements. Why wouldn't we run listings with them? So there you go. Um, but again, all music attorneys, including my friend Aaron Jacobson, will tell you, check everything out with a music attorney. If you're doing a record deal, absolutely freaking lootly use a music attorney. 
Um, if you're talking about signing instrumental cues that are going to make you very little money, each one is going to make very little, if any, money, but it adds up over time. So don't get freaked out if you get a BMI statement or something that says you made $1.75 for a particular cue being in an episode of a reality show this quarter. Don't freak out, okay? That was a long answer for a guy who had three hours of sleep last night, and it's now... 11.11, wow. Um, and this one's from Michael Reschke. Hey, Michael, how are you? Is he in the chat room tonight? Haven't seen Reschke around lately. Um, I thought he mentioned this during the rally, that of the music examples for the listings, the first one is the higher priority to follow. I might have heard this wrong, but I wanted to ask the question. Um, what Michael's referring to is I did re make a reference during one of the panels at the Road Rally. I think we're talking about interpreting the listings. It's probably the panel with John Pearson and uh, Greg um, Carosa. Um, I would say it's not a hard, fast rule. I don't make the people who write the listings. I haven't insisted that they do this. It's something that I'm sure we've talked about over several generations of listing writers at Taxi, that it's a good idea to put the listing that we think points the members in the right direction. The best of the three should go first. Now, there are times where all three are equally weighted. That happens quite often as well. So, and, what we don't want you to do is hear a single reference and go, I'm going to make a piece of music just like that. I'm going to try really hard to mimic everything about it without ripping off the original piece of music. Um, that's probably not a good way to go. More often than not, the best way to go is listen to all three pieces and go, what do they have in common? Well, the BPM is really close to right on the money for all three. They all have a happy vibe. They all uh, are major chords, no, no minors, um, not a lot of sevenths or ninths or weirdo chords in there. Um, straight ahead, one, four, five, major chords, emotionally upbeat, feel good. Um, the kick in the bass are really firm on the bottom end. Oh, and they've got horns. Look at that. All three of them have a cool little horn part. So triangulate is the word that I use for it. What do they have in common? And then what can you make or what do you have that would go on a playlist with those three things um, and fit right in? Where somebody go, yeah, that's very much in the ballpark of those three things. So that's what you're trying to do is submit something that would fit on a playlist with the three references. Um, there are times where I personally, it's my opinion because I check the listings and I listen to the references, you know, not all the time, but often enough. And I do find that the first reference is usually the one, don't only listen to that one, but that one is probably the best of the three. You know what? It's not that it's the closest, but it has the most identifiable stuff that will get you in the right ballpark. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Um, let's see. We've got 15 minutes left. 
Okay, now, all of you who've been asking questions in the chat that I've been ignoring while I looked at the ones on my phone, please feel free to fire some off, and I will do my best to answer them in the next 15 minutes. Hey, Yuka, how are you? Um, okay, this one's from Henry Pinkney. How many artists have signed with a major or independent via taxi? Recently, I submitted artist music for such a listing that we published together. Um, far fewer things get signed to major or independent labels than get signed to production music library deals. The reason is the average uh, reality show uses, I don't know, somewhere around 100 different cues. I think... Um, Oh God, uh, I can't think of her name right now. Why can't the Laurel, Laurel Ostrander, who was excellent, by the way, at the Red Rally. I thought she's always excellent. Um, she's a high-end video editor um, who is just so well-spoken, so articulate. Um, and she, I think, surprised even me when she said that it was more than 100 cues on average for reality shows. So there are a lot more there's a lot more need, therefore a lot more deals can be signed. And nobody is betting the farm or their job or their entire career on, I'm going to put that cue in our library versus I'm going to sign this artist to a deal and if it's a bomb, my butt is on the line. All that said, and I need a swig of something to drink. Um... Fruit water. I don't think we have that in the States. It's very fruity. Trust me. Whew. That is very fruity. It's strawberry flavored. Yikes. It's like drinking a popsicle. Um, anyway, I hate when people ask this question because my memory's not that great to begin with. But I will tell you, we just had a 14-year-old kid that just signed with Curb Records, just found out about that like three or four weeks ago. Um, that was a result of him coming to the road rally and, and meeting the right person at the road rally. Uh, we had a young lady who was signed to a full-on jazz record deal with a big jazz label two years ago-ish. Um, and ended up having the number one female jazz vocal song of the year that year. Um, we've had bands that have gotten signed to record deals with major record labels and had a platinum album on their first release um, and a number one single. We've had bands that have signed record deals that were never heard from again. Our world is reflective of the real world of the record industry. Uh, we've had guys like Dean Crepain, who is one of, you know, taxi royalty, and I use that term affectionately. Um, he's very, very successful doing film and TV music, and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And Dean got a song of his forwarded to an artist on Universal, let's say Germany or something, Stephanie Heinzman, I believe. Uh, excuse me, was her name, and had... I think a number one single, and he definitely got a gold and or platinum record out of that deal. Um, Taxi got a gold or platinum record, maybe one of each. Uh, the song Kiss Me by Sixpence None the Richer. They couldn't get arrested after they signed their record deal. 
Um, we got them into film and TV, and I think it was Dawson's Creek that included their song, which was one of the first times, if not the first time, that an unknown band got their music in a big hit TV show, and that blew up, and their record took off, and they had a really nice career, all because of one placement, which is pretty rare, but it did happen in their case. And um, let's see. Gosh, I can't remember. Um, come to the office, look at the gold and platinum records on the wall. But the answer to your question is yes. Um, people do get signed to record deals. There are just far fewer opportunities to sign record deals. The bar is much higher than it would be for a piece of instrumental music going into a production music library for the aforementioned reasons, but it does happen. Um, Hey, Paul House, how are you, buddy? I'm almost in your time zone this week. Um, and I will be next week as well. By the way, don't miss next week's show because you're going to see me working without a net. I am going to play Taxi's Top 10 next week, and I'm going to be doing it without the aid of the roadcaster. So I'm actually going to drop the 10 songs into our video broadcast software and click on them and hope that everything works, which reminds me, I've got to highlight this bad boy right now. Okay. Um, ooh, Session Wire. Isn't Session Wire the best? Love that software. Um, by the way, if for any of you <clears throat> who didn't see the Road Rally or saw the Road Rally but didn't watch the sponsor videos, I was blown away this year by the sponsor videos. Uh, it all kind of started last year with that great Master Writer thing. Master Writer is underappreciated in my opinion. Um, they did a video last year that we aired at last year's Road Rally 2020 and we aired it again this year several times that really is the best explanation of what Master Writer can do. It doesn't write songs for you, but it really, really is an invaluable tool, especially with lyrics. Um, so they kind of set the bar, <clears throat> excuse me, they set the bar, uh, and when new sponsors came on this year, I said to them, look, you know, if you make a great video, people pay attention to it and kind of held the master writer video out there as this is kind of what you need to do. And the guys at air gigs, another great company. We were so proud of the quality of sponsors this year. Air Gigs, if you haven't checked them out, it's a place where you can hire session players, singers, um, engineers, mixers, mastering people, what have you. And you can put yourself out there and make yourself available for hire through um, Air Gigs. Great company. And I've got to say, one of the reasons I like them so much is I, I now know the owner of the company. And I think that he and I share similar philosophies about the way we run companies. Oh, my wife is home. She's trying to unlock the door. Come on in, Deb. <laughs> anyway, um, he's a great guy, and I really like the way he runs his company. Has a similar vibe to Taxi and a similar ethical bar as Taxi does. So um, I was very, very happy to have them as a sponsor. Session Wire, amazing. Just all those guys. Um, very, very proud to have them with us. Um, and please continue with the noon um, thing. The problem is if I do it at noon in L.A., um, 
the 80% of our members are in the United States. Um, and, and not saying that the 20% outside of the United States don't matter, they do. Um, and, and we're actually always thrilled that we've got 20% of our members uh, from around the world, places I've never even heard of sometimes. But we do have to cater to the majority, which are in the United States. And by doing four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, we know that people in the central time zone are going to be getting off work uh, and people on the East Coast are already off work. So that's why we chose four o'clock on Mondays. But whenever I'm out of town and this side of the planet, um, we will do them at noon. Um, yes, you do matter, Amanda. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, I'm looking for other questions. Um, there's a link to Master Writer. Yay, oh, to watch the video. Great, thank you for that. Uh, Ellie says, I'm retired. I don't care if it's at 1 a.m. I'll be there. <laughs> I'm not, uh, it's hard doing these, starting them at 10 o'clock at night, chugging coffee before I do the show at 10 o'clock at night. Um, I hope I can fall asleep tonight. I'm cross-eyed tired right now. Literally had about three hours and 20 minutes of sleep last night. Um, maybe I could do it once a month at noon. Maybe, or maybe a quarantini. I haven't been doing quarantinis lately. I, honestly, I didn't want to look at my laptop or this camera after the road rally this year. This one really beat me into the ground, and I was happy that it came off well, and everybody seemed really happy with it, and just needed a break from broadcasting. Um, so for the next couple of weeks, while I'm still over here hanging out with my kids, um, I, mean, I am going to continue to do regular taxi TVs, and when I get back to L.A., um, then I will do, uh, start doing some quarantinis again. Um, Super Blonde, what's the next seasonal genre coming up for submissions? Um, I don't know, Super Blonde. If I have a good answer, my brain isn't letting me know it right now. <laughs> Andre, if there's anybody who should get calls for being a great guitar player, you should. You know I'm a fan. Um, I had my phone in my pocket blaring Lasco as I was finishing my last job. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. <laughs> uh, Ellie wants to know, did you go float in the Dead Sea this time? No, I have literally not done one vacation-y thing at all. Not one. Um, been really busy with all kinds of other stuff. I have been in the Dead Sea, but that was like back in the mid-90s, I think, and it's a trip. Everybody should do it once. Um, I will tell you, if you've got any razor cuts or any other openings in your body, use your imagination, kids. Um, that salt water gets in there and it'll make you go, woo, baby. Um, but it is amazing. It, you know, spend a half an hour in the Dead Sea and your skin will be like it's never been since you were a little tiny baby. Um, question from Mark Fell. Hey, Mark. Uh, material released on CD Baby didn't give away publishing. It's in the black hole. Can I remix, re-record, submit for use? Um, I don't really understand the question. So you didn't do... 
the CD Baby Pro thing. Um, can you remix, re-record, and submit for use? I'm not sure I fully understand that. So you've got something, but you put it out, so you've distributed it to places like Spotify, et cetera, et cetera, through CD Baby's distribution channel, but you haven't signed their publishing deal. Can you submit that music? I, I think you can. There are some libraries or some, some entities that don't want stuff that's been released there, and you'll see it. It'll say that in the listing. But for the most part, I think it's okay. They may, a library may say to you upon wanting to sign you, and your fellow members could probably give you better advice on this than I can. Um, some libraries may say to you upon signing, by the way, is this out there? You know, have you um, distributed it through CD Baby or to Encore or somebody? If you have, can you please end that relationship and pull it down? Um, Right, you didn't do CD Baby Pro. I think you're okay. Your fellow members asked that question on the forum, but I'm pretty sure you're okay. Um, can you still swim in the Utah Salt Lakes? How does it compare to the Dead Sea? I think the Dead Sea is the saltiest place on the planet, I think. Um, watch Google Conan O'Brien swimming in the Dead Sea on YouTube, or not Google it, search it on YouTube. Conan O'Brien swimming in the Dead Sea. It, it's pretty funny. Uh, time for one more question here. This one's from Harold Pinckney again. Whoops. Uh, two a year, one virtual in the winter, and one person's road. <laughs> Can I do two road rallies a year? Let me answer by saying no. <laughs> One almost kills me. Seriously, I have to take three months where nothing else happens in my life. Three months, 90 straight days of work, you know, like 12 hours a day minimally. Um, it, it's heartbreaking. I don't, you know, it's like I don't need violins playing for me, but um, it's mentally tough when I'm at the office for an eight or 10 or 12 hour Saturday and the staff isn't there, they, they can't be there because I write the question, I, I come up with the ideas for the panels, I think about who I want as panelists, I have to do that juggling act with who can do it on which day and I've got three out of four and then the fourth one can only do it on Sunday, can the other three switch, which is a nightmare. Um, and then writing all the questions for the panel and you can't just make them up out of thin air. In many cases, I have to research these people, really look into their backgrounds. Uh, Mary um, Ramos, uh, I, I don't know, somewhere over 15 hours of research to get ready for that interview. That's just one person. So, nope, I can't do two, sorry. Um, no, you know what, Paul? Um, you haven't missed the giveaway of the hoodie. I've missed the, the giveaway of the hoodie. I had to get ready, getting out of town to come over here. Um, ooh, we're over time. I had to do all kinds of paperwork and, and you know, you had to get a, a COVID test three days within a 72 hour window before you fly, and then fill out all kinds of governmental stuff here for the Ministry of Health. I was so busy doing that and literally not knowing that I was gonna get on that plane until the night before I flew, everything kind of fell into place. 
Um, and I totally missed the, the ball on that. Um, so Liz and Bria, can you guys, would you guys be kind enough tomorrow to collaborate and go look at the comments um, that I asked for? Remember I said people who have the best comments, person with the best comments gets taxi hoodie. Can you ladies please take care of that? I did look at them. But there were like three that I really liked. I couldn't narrow it down. And I've been meaning to talk to you guys to take care of that. So please do. Uh, thank you for reminding me, Paul. I appreciate that more than you know. Um, anyway, that's it. Um, thank you, Paul. <laughs> thank you all for joining me tonight. It was fun. Um, I look forward to seeing you a week from today, same time, 12 noon in LA and whatever time it is, wherever you are. Um, and we will be listening to the top 10, which I look forward to because I haven't heard them yet this month. So that's it. Everybody have a great Thanksgiving. Um, our family is going to be having Thanksgiving in Israel. They're not big on turkey over here, by the way. It's really hard to find one. <laughs> Good night, you guys. Uh, see you in a week, all right? Bye-bye. No quarantine.